0: For those who fish, this is the Drake cast.
1: He was tying feathers on a hook.
2: I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The
3: river was like a woman. It could be a disco midge, it could be a beadhead.
0: I'm your host, Elliot Adler.
4: Energy efficient gas and wood fireplaces and stoves since 1978.
0: A few weeks ago, just before the new year, I found myself in Duluth, Minnesota. Local
4: forecasts, increasing clouds overnight, lows 10 to 15 below, wind chills 25 below. Cloudy tomorrow, light snow is likely, could see 1 to 2 inches. Eyes
0: around By now, you probably know that this is a fly fishing podcast. And you also probably know that it's pretty darn difficult to fly fish when it's negative 20 degrees outside. What the heck was I doing in Duluth, Minnesota? Well, I was there to do some ice fishing. And I'll be the first to tell you that... I hate ice fishing. It's like bait fishing, but cold. Now I know as a Midwesterner, it's important to get outside in the winter, but does sitting in a heated shack and staring at a screen connected to an underwater camera really count as being outside? But I digress. Because this ice fishing trip was different. It involved eight weight rods and the types of flies that you normally throw at muskies. And it was great. The adventures started with a slog across an ice-covered lake in northern Minnesota with a couple of local guys.
5: He was heading straight for the fly, too. <laughs>
0: this is Lucky Porter, who's a well-known muskie and bass guide out of Duluth, and he had agreed to take me out and let me in on some ancient secrets. Whoosh, just for a second. I was like, oh. Metal tabs
6: for fins, both on the tail and on the dorsal fin and the... What's the front one?
0: Hansi Johnson, a large Nordic man, was there as well. Recently, Hansi has become one of my favorite photographers to work with, and his images frequently appear in the Drake. I don't know my icky enough. Both Hansi and Lucky have nearly a foot on me, so I let them pull the sleds that overflowed with pitchforks, saws, propane tanks, 7-inch flies, some antique lures, busted rods, and of course, a little bit of hope. Once we got to where we wanted to be on the lake, we had to drill a few test holes through the ice to make sure that we were actually in the right area. Once we found a spot that Lucky and Hansi deemed fishable, it was time to get serious.
5: It kind of almost looks like there might be a little weeds here. We're at like seven and a half, eight. We're almost where we want to be, really.
0: There were already a few of our holes in the ice, but for our purposes, these holes needed to be bigger. A lot bigger. Lucky pulled out the largest saw I have ever seen and began slicing through the ice as if it were butter. Pretty soon, he had cut out a three foot by two foot chunk of ice. But we needed to get that chunk of ice up and out of the hole, which we did by grabbing it with a giant set of metal tongs.
5: that's over a foot
0: you never know really can tell when you just look
5: down the hole but when you have a chunk i mean that's coming up on 14 inches (laughs) (laughs) want to yank one we'll see yeah how much does that one weigh i wouldn't try and lift it but if you just not too bad what
0: do you think it weighs total
5: i bet you it's 150
0: pounds yeah okay go for that smaller one yeah with everything all set, we were nearly ready to do some fishing. But remember folks, ice can be very slippery. Yeah, I am
6: Whoa, Whoa. Did you fall in the hole? Oh! Oh man, the recorder almost went. That was like all balls like to fucking, hang on to it and not dude. put your hand down, dude. you bounced off He went down and like instead of putting I hand know. down, held the recorder. I was like, What's going on? Wow! I mean. it's like, God your face dude. almost went in the water. Dude, <laughs> he almost went in the water. He <laughs> bounced off my leg. It's I can't
5: a- believe you didn't drop <laughs> that thing in the hole, You gotta hole. remember that. Yeah, right? yeah I'm fine. <laughs>
0: Eventually, we completed the pre-fishing rigmarole and set up the portable shack. It was time to spear some northern pike. I mean, the sport is pretty simple.
6: You know, you, you put a decoy in the water, you swim it around, the fish swims up, and you whack it. <laughs>
0: To fully understand the story, I need to explain the setup of winter spearfishing. You start by finding an iced over lake with high visibility where there are pike. From there, you cut a 2 foot by 3 foot rectangle out of the ice. Next you need to be able to see into that hole, and the way you do this is by putting some sort of shelter over the hole, which is known as a dark house. This cuts the glare and allows the angler to see into the water below. So you have the hole, you can see into the hole, and now you have to lure a pike in with a decoy of some sort. And these decoys usually look like a fish and seem to really stir up those underwater toothy carnivores. And then of course, after you call that fish in, you gotta finish the job.
6: I mean, it's, it is primal. <laughs> look at that, I mean, you got this thing. Like, you're going to stick this in a fish. Like, that that right there, there's nothing about that that says catch and release, man. That thing just says kill. Fear the spear.
5: You won't want to get one of those things like, stuck into your leg or something. That'd be a bad day.
0: Hurt through your foot? I mean, a hook through a finger sucks. Right. But it's manageable. I yeah, I don't
5: think the wrapping the braided line trick would work if you had that spear jabbed into your belly. <laughs>
0: another almost like a firearm yeah yeah it's
6: true it's It's a weapon it is a weapon no
0: safety yeah so yeah could you just go through the process of let's see we've got one that's interested. what are you looking for in the fish and then what do you do
5: you kind of got to read them as they come in and see you know if they're just cruising slow or if they're like ready to attack and Either way, you're trying to kind of steer them into position. You can get that spear in the water and down as low as you can so that you can just drop it on them from behind their head so they can't see it coming. If they see it coming, they'll get out of the way, or if you throw it real hard, they'll get out of the way.
0: So you're not, like, plunging the thing in from out of the water for a quick jab? No, you sneak
5: it into the water quick and then just drop it. The weight of the spear carries it down.
0: And can you describe what these spears are for people who can't see one right now? It's about a 5-foot steel shaft with
5: anywhere from like five to nine tines sticking off of it, barbed tines that are 12, 14 inches long. Kind of
0: like
3: a big pitchfork with
0: barbs
5: on it, basically.
0: And this style of fishing is pretty ancient
3: spearing being one of the oldest forms of fishing done by man and, and likely predates angling
0: this is Dan Wilfond
3: W-I-L-F-O-N-D I am a fishery specialist with uh, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources out of Duluth Minnesota my main activities here is uh, inland lake management
6: I was reading a little history I think the first recorded European mention of spearing was like 16 something they found so the like natives, natives doing it yeah the natives yeah. have been doing it for like millennia
5: yeah they were just like put some fur over there back and lay down cut a little hole have the spear in the hole and lay there with their face like right next to the eyes and the fur over top of them
0: and like most relationships between early european settlers and the original inhabitants of this country in addition to stealing their land and then their children we also stole their style of winter fishing
3: I I did uh, do a little bit of research here for for the interview.
0: Again, Dan Wilfond with the DNR.
3: The origins of spearfishing being traced back to traditions that were passed down by Native Americans to European settlers.
0: Rick Gerton, the president of the Minnesota Dark House and Angling Association, has a cheerier view of the transfer of knowledge.
1: Yeah, I think it was really just, you know, it, it just. Another iteration of how they worked together, you know, they were working together with trading and whatever else they were working together doing. I think this is just another one of those things that the Native people were able to show us instead of the other way around, you know.
0: And as more and more European settlers moved to Minnesota, more people began spearfishing pike through the ice. It originated with the Natives,
5: but yeah, like the original white people up here. It was a Great Depression thing. It got big yeah. during the Depression. They ate a lot of plague with spear holes in them.
1: It was easy, and it actually provided... Again, this is Rick. Um, it could provide quite a bit of fresh food, fresh fish, for, uh, throughout the winter, when normally people in rural areas, so this just supplemented you know, any kind of game they would hunt, like deer or whatever. So it was a really good way to get good quality meat for, about four months of the winter, when it was hard to get other types
0: of food. Anyways, back to the dark house with Hansi and Lucky. There's a
5: little guy there, oh yeah. yeah. He's still there, see that light? I think, that's what I was looking at before.
0: And to further describe the whole setup, Lucky, Hansi, and I were staring down into these two big rectangles, and due to the sunlight penetrating the ice around us, the water into which we stared seemed to be glowing. It was almost like looking into a TV screen. And every once in a while, a fish would come into view and check out our decoys. It was like going to the aquarium when you were a kid. But this time, just like you always wanted to, you got to goof around with the fish. I knew it was
5: a fish. Find out right here. Yeah, there he went. Did you see him zap out of there? Look at the mud cloud. Yeah, he was still there.
0: Yeah. And if you were really feeling it, you could shove a spear through the fish in the aquarium. And
5: if he comes back, we'll drop the hammer.
0: In order to lure the fish in, Hansi and Lucky took the butt end of a busted fly rod and an old fly reel rigged up with braided backing, and then they attached the decoys to the end of that line. Could you describe the motion of what's going on with this decoy and what you're doing? Yeah, so I mean the decoy,
6: I kind of pull up and down, I'm jigging it on an old butt end. Oop, oh, there's a little one. So I'm pulling up and down on the, on the butt end of the fly rod, so I'm just sort of jigging it. But the cool thing is, is that the decoy has metal tabs for fins both on the tail and on the dorsal fin and but uh, so they when I let it go it soars it literally soars like a glider like a gliding airplane and it goes real big, long, easy swoops and the really good decoys will do really slow, kind of long slow dives. I think if it's doing that big spin it's always giving at some point the fish a broadside or some sort of look at it from the, from the, you know, from a different angle and it's sore. It's kind of fun just to watch it soar. It's kind of mesmerizing. must be because you can sit in here and do it for like eight hours and not see a single thing and just sit there and watch
0: the decoy the whole time. (laughs) Some folks use live bait, others use jigs, but for the most part, the decoys are pretty simple. But a few years back, Lucky was having some trouble with the normal decoys.
5: On one lake, they were just slashing and dashing. He could never get a spear in them.
0: So Lucky got tricky and decided to use a big fly instead of a decoy. And so what is this that you're pulling around in the water?
5: This is one of Eli's Optimus swines that got chewed up by muskies. So it's delegated to a spearhouse duty now, just like all the old fly rods and reels that we're using to jig. Uh, I just put a wire leader and an egg
0: sinker to sink it down. If
5: they hit it, they're hooked. You can fight them on
0: this rod that won't bend. Lucky began fly fishing through the ice. There seemed to be some advantages of the fly over the conventional decoy. In Lucky's shack, we had two spearing holes slightly offset. In one hole, Hansi jigged a decoy. And then next to it, Lucky tooled around with the musky fly.
6: Oh, there he is. Mm-hmm. just came by mine. My... He's gonna come hit this fly. We can have a chance to... He's just a little guy. Oh, he oh, just pounded he it. It. I got him!
0: Nope. <laughs> the fish shot right past Hansi's decoy and hooked itself on the fly.
6: Did you see him light off from yeah. that side? Yeah. Watch the whole thing.
5: When you said that, I started just going...
6: <laughs> <laughs>
5: and wow! He awesome, just grabbed it. He
6: just pounded up. is that great? Oh, you can see it happen. <laughs> it's sweet that you got to see him launch. Yeah, I got to see both. Like, I saw him launch, I looked and over he here in time to see shake him shaking his head. That was cool.
0: It was so little that Lucky didn't set the hook, but as the day went on, we definitely noticed some fish that were attracted to the fly over the decoy, and vice versa. They were complementary tools. Even if people aren't into spearing fish through the ice, this trip was a great way to learn how pike react to flies. So yeah, what have you learned about pike for targeting them on the fly while spearfishing?
5: You can learn a lot watching them like this. I mean, you see how they set up. Sometimes they creep in slow, set up, launch. Sometimes they launch from 10 feet away or something where you never saw them set up. But you definitely see how they want to hit it at a 90. Like right behind the ear, they want to T-bone it. One of those little pike will sit there and stare at it and stare at it and stare at it. If you kind of start jigging it until it turns broadside, all of a sudden it turns broadside, you see them start flickering their fins. Like they almost have to hit it sometimes. Like if they get the perfect (laughs) setup, 90 like that, so like goes from like oh i'm kind of interested that i gotta do this
6: yeah for me it, it's been just like how how long they do wait you know like they do wait for the perfect setup you know it's like you know, i was assume that if i'm just ripping something big and fat by one it's just gonna go nuts and hit it right sometimes in the weeds yeah but it's not like a lot of times They're i think it's logics. it's like looking at it a lot and going wow i think that's worth eating or it's not worth eating so it's like for me, it makes the second cast worth taking, right? Yeah. You know, because the like, first time you rip it through, it's like, yeah, maybe I just didn't quite get his attention. It's worth another shot. Definitely like watching him do that sort of just changed my whole like idea. Yeah, for sure. Because like, you, if get you to see what a it's pike. Doing. If you see a
5: pike following in a little ways from the boat, they don't like the boat, really. But yeah. if you see him a ways away from the boat, you can make him eat it most of the time. Yeah. If you're Larry Dalbert, you can make him eat it probably every time.
0: And we saw this play out over and over again.
5: And there's one down there. See him on the bottom slither? I think he's still sitting there, actually. See him on the bottom there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, bring that thing up real slow. See if he'll rise. And drop it back down a little bit. He's a little deep. He's got to come this way to get stuck. There you go. Get him, like, wiggle it down there in front of him. See him start to pee on it. Now pull it, like, tight this way and raise it up. Real slow. He doesn't want to come up fast. There you go. Leave it right there and wiggle it. Maybe drop it a little bit.
0: The fish just sat there staring at the fly for at least five minutes before swimming off. I guess we never quite made the fly dance the way that it wanted, but it was almost like a video game, trying out different moves and seeing how the boss reacted. Could you guys talk a little bit about the relationship of catch and release pike all year and then in the winter, sticking a pitchfork in him?
5: (laughs) (laughs) That's the only thing about this, like once every few years you spear a big one and that's fine. But I mean, it's awesome to decoy the big ones in, but you don't want to kill a bunch of big ones. It's kind of what you're after, but it's also kind of, you gotta be careful. I mean, any time of year, if I'm looking for a meal, a pike's a good fish to take, like a young pike. They're super plentiful, they're good to eat. Gotta know how to deal with the bones a little bit, but they don't take long to grow and it's definitely not doing any damage. So this is just kind of an even more selective version of that. Whether there's no catch and release once you drop the spear. So if you're going to drop the spear on them, that's a fish that you want to eat.
6: Catch and release is is like mandatory for certain species and in, in, in fishing in general, I think it's the best practice. But there's definitely a time to eat a fish, you know, <laughs> like sometimes you just want to eat and if you're selective on what kind of fish it is, and you're smart about it, I think it's it's certainly fun to do. And pike, like I said, they're the ones, right? I mean, yeah. they're prolific. They're everywhere, and they're aggressive, and they're fun, you know? It's both uh But yeah, it is more like hunting. It's, it's more like fish hunting than it is... Reminds me more of deer hunting than it does summer
0: fishing, really, even. And this controversy is old. Um, the legacy of spearing in
3: Minnesota is is long, and it's it's laced with controversy.
0: Again, Dan Wilfond with the DNR.
3: Uh, some user groups have have contended that that spearing is not real compatible with other users of the fishery. And in beginning in, in about the 1920s, there was a several decades long period in here in Minnesota where there were conceded efforts to try to restrict spearing by state authorities
0: and. Through the '30s and '40s, there was a pretty successful effort to limit spearfishing throughout the state.
3: Um, by 1947, winter spearing season was cut from approximately 77-day season down to about a, just a one month, a 30-day period. At which point, the dark house spearing groups became quite organized and and, and began some large-scale protests.
0: And there were legitimate questions of how many fish spears were taking out of Minnesota waters.
3: The DNR did initiate some studies to look into that. And, and these studies have shown that spears harvest pike at a rate that's very similar to, to anglers. But um, these same studies have also shown that, that spears do take larger fish you know, on average than, than anglers. So that's where a lot of the controversy comes.
0: But the hardcore spear fishers fought back. Saws and pitchforks in hand
3: The user groups that, that, that were very intro spearing were able to, uh, to lobby you know successfully for, for these regulations to be to be pared down and, and to, to not restrict their, their use of the waters as much as, as the other user groups were interested. so
0: But as these lobbying groups were successfully winning battles against limitations on darkhouse spear fishing, overall, fewer people were spearing.
3: In the 1950s, we had about 55,000 licensed anglers in the mid-1950s. That number has since dropped to an average of about 15,000 licenses sold from about 1999 through 2004.
0: The post-war boom was on. Instead of spearing their winter food, people were making babies and fighting communists and moving to cities and buying fresh food at the Piggly Wiggly. And like so many traditions, spearfishing went out of fashion. Why, why do you think fewer people were going out spearfishing after the 50s? Well, I think the tradition has,
3: has largely not, not been adopted by current generations. Um, I think there is some, um, you know, we have, obviously we have a very strong catch and release Ethic now for anglers in in the state and country as a whole, and I'm sure that has has played a part in it. you know obviously when you spear fish there's no releasing it. Um, so I'm, I'm certain that that's played some role and you know I, you know this is a tradition that's largely been passed down to by by elders to, to the young children, and there's probably been some reduction in that as well.
0: Rick Gerton of the Minnesota Dark House and Angling Association has a more pointed criticism.
1: You know, in large part, I think that's due to what the youth are interested in these days, finding more indoor hobbies. And we all know what those hobbies are, but uh, they're not, in my opinion, not as fun as the outdoor sports. So I think we'd have a lot more people doing all this ice fishing sports if they just uh, had a little bit more interaction as far as what type of hobbies they like.
0: And there's also a good chance that overfishing played a role in the decline of the sport.
1: God, you know,
6: it's pretty funny. Like, as a kid, I remember, and this is probably why there aren't any, is I remember my grandpa and my uncles, mm-hmm. we'd go fishing, they would just catch big pike all the time. Yeah. But they would almost always keep them. Yeah. they were yeah. talking, you know, late 70s, early 80s.
0: I'm sure, yeah. There may be some controversy over the ethics of spearfishing, and as a catch-and-release angler myself, I understand this. But what I loved about my time on the ice with Hansi and Lucky is that other than the advent of more modern decoys, this sport really hasn't changed in the last several hundred years. The steel pitchforks, gigantic metal tongs, and ice saws are old world tools. And just like fishing with a bamboo rod or strapping that wicker creel onto your wading belt, sometimes it's nice to take a step back in time.
6: My grandfather was really inspiring spearing and When he died a lot of his decoys were just given to my dad who who gave them to me so i have like seven different decoys that he carved and uh you know they're simple enough to work they're not as effective as oh i just had a fish flesh so they're effective they're not as good as a lot of the modern decoys because certainly people have gotten better but it's pretty crazy that it's that simple where you could still use a decoy that's 40 40 plus years
0: old and we've killed fish with it and it's cool that he carved it, you know? Back in the Dark House, we had a player fish that just couldn't take its eyes off of Lucky's fly. There he is. Yep. It's
5: he came ages. right up at it. Oh, Jesus. You see my <laughs> Yeah. It was heading straight for the fly, too. <laughs> like, whoosh, just for a second. Was like, oh. as as he started, I was like, I bet he
6: sees
5: my deco. Yeah. It was like on a track for the fly. There he is, Hans. Huh? Do you want him? Look at him see him cock his head like that.
0: But before we can find out what happened to that little guy, a few words from our sponsors. This episode of The Drake Cast is brought to you by Scott Flyrods. Last week, I had the pleasure of attending the Denver Fly Fishing Show, where I spoke with Theo Annis about why he trusts and represents Scott Flyrods.
6: ready to rock? Yeah, I'm
0: ready to rock. Okay. So Scott Flyrods, for me, uh, I've seen it from every level of the rod sales process,
3: as both a retailer, uh, having owned a fly shop, and now from the sales uh, representative side. And, you know, what first drew me to Scott was that it really was a homegrown product. When you hear made in America, we think, okay, great, yeah, that's a nice thing, but you know, what I encourage people to do is actually go see Made in America. When you go into that factory and it's regular blue-collar guys like me and you cutting graphite you know, from flat sheets of graphite being cut and then rolled around a mandrel from that beginning stage all the way to the final signature on the rod is a handmade rod. I just think that that gets somewhat lost
0: until you actually go and see it. To check out Made in America for yourself, swing by Scott's production plant in Montrose, Colorado, USA. To get one of these works of art in your hands, head down to your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. This episode is also brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. On the opposite side of the show, I caught up with Daniel Marquez, the manager of Grand Slam Fishing Lodge in Punta Allen, Mexico. We fish Ascension Bay and water's all around there. What do you like about being down there? well it's a beautiful beautiful area just picturesque water and then really it's the diversity of uh
3: fishing species we have we you know we uh we have bonefish plenty of big bone fish we're the permit capital of the world we uh we have snook tarpon
0: barracuda jacks and uh and many many other species that are all uh easily catchable on the fly and what's your favorite thing to do down there fishing wise Permit. Permit fishing is uh, my passion. Uh, they're, they're just about the hardest species on the fly to catch, and they'll drive you crazy, but then when it, when it all happens, when it all comes together, there's, there's not really anything better. Not at all. To plan your trip to Grand Slam Fishing Lodge or one of the many other fine fly fishing destinations offered, visit yellowdogflyfishing.com. Alrighty, just before the break, we had a fish coming into view.
5: There he is, Hans, you want him? Look at him, see him cock his head like that. Yeah, yeah, drop it a little down a few. There he goes, now he's starting to come up. There you go, now just slowly raise it up. Bring your rod towards me, inside me, there you go. Yup, that's what you want. Yup, 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 yup. Oh, I missed him. <laughs> he was already kind of swimming away.
0: The pike got wind of our plan and immediately dodged the spear. Well played. When Lucky pulled the spear out of the water, the dark house immediately smelled of iron. The scent of blood filled the air, even though we had missed our mark. Next time, we'd be ready. And Dan, wh- where do you think this sport is heading?
3: You know, the other thing that you had you had asked about, Elliot, was about if there's a, any kind of a resurgence in spearfishing recently. And although I don't have any hard numbers on that, there is there is some data that suggests that there has been uh, a recent bump in in uh, spearfishing activity, and that's likely attributed to some recent legislation that was passed in Minnesota which reduced the cost of a spearfishing license.
0: And people like Lucky and Hansi are part of this resurgence. It was always like a solitary
5: kind of old man's deal for a long time. Seems like it's kind of coming back around. I mean, you still see a lot of the old shacks out there, but you see a lot of younger people doing it now.
0: Again, Rick Gerton of the Minnesota Dark House and Angling Association. Uh, since I haven't Im-
1: been involved in our state organization, which has 15 chapters throughout the state, we've act- actively gone out and uh, recruited more youth. We've had activities that support uh, youth activity, fishing derbies, things that actually interested and it actually has worked. And so we we have seen a slight uptick in youth being involved and wanting to do stuff like this with their parents. So. It's been interesting along those lines. As with anything, any sport or any hobby or any activity that we humans do, um, it's important to get youth involved in it so that it survives. If uh, you don't continue to renew your sport with some fresh people, then it's uh, probably gonna die out eventually. So that, that's kind of what we're focused on as uh, just making sure youth are involved.
0: And just as the youth are returning to this sport, that same pike that we had narrowly missed with the spear, returned to Lucky's fly.
5: He came back after he got pricked, I think he'll probably... Oh, here he is. You got him over he's there?
4: anyway.
5: Oh yeah, he's right there. Watch, pull your rod
6: inside me. I
4: gotta get over Ooh. Here
5: he is.
6: Here, take the rod. his yes. <laughs> nice. Oh, he's a little... That,
5: that was that awesome, little... dude! Let him go! <laughs>
0: <Rad>.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. Yes, it was. Doo-doo. Stick around for a funny spearfishing story from a family friend that didn't quite make it into this episode. And for you Denver folks, we've got an announcement for a special event coming up this next week. But first, a few thank yous. Hansi and Lucky, thanks for showing me such a good time out on the ice. Rick Gerton, Thanks for chatting and all the work you do for the dark house anglers across the state of Minnesota. Dan Wilfond, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Keegan Lynch designed our logo. Our intro song is Ain't It Sweet by Phil Cook. Alrighty, I wanted to find a place for the story in the piece, but I just couldn't quite squeeze it in. So here it is.
4: So the, the question is, how long do you want the story? Do you want the long version or the short version? Or how many minutes are you looking to fill up?
0: Give me what you got, and uh, I can chop it down to what I need. How about that? Okay. All right.
4: So do I need to say my name?
0: You can if you want. You don't have to, though.
4: Okay. So I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and my dad uh, lives in, or lived in Blue Earth, Minnesota, which is about two and a half hours south of Minneapolis. And um, he had, a, a, had had a stroke. So one year, my wife and I and our two children had gone to Blue Earth for Christmas. I thought, well, there might be an opportunity to um, take my dad ice fishing. And, um, and so my uncle was going to go, and my nephew, Daniel, was going to join us. And there was a lake by Albert Lee, Minnesota, that had good spearing for a northern pike.
0: So Keith's wife and kids headed back home. But there wasn't room in the car for their dog.
4: And so the dog, Dusty, the dog was a cockapoo. Had to go with me ice fishing um well the next morning the sun came up and it turned out it was 20 below zero it was really cold we went out to the lake and so we had three fish houses we set up one for my dad one for my uncle and one for myself and so we cut all the holes um got my dad set up in a fish house got the heater going and so the, the dog had to go with me on this trip and i had visions of me uh, going across the snow on my snowmobile and the dog running behind and unfortunately the dog uh didn't quite have the same vision and so for transporting and forth i had to hold the dog in my arms on the snowmobile and drive with one arm and hang on to the dog but anyway we finally got everybody all set up and so it was the last house and so and this dog is a pretty hyper dog and and i put the dog in the in the dark house and then i went and took one trip around the dark house just to make sure i didn't have any more gear to to grab and I was going to step in and start the heater and start um, watching for fish. Well, I walked around the house, and there wasn't any other gear, and I opened up the door and stepped into the house, and there was no dog. Well, I figured the dog <laughs> had gotten in the house and was run running around like normal and had fallen into the hole. And so I ran over to the hole and looked down, and I could just uh, see the dog just barely through the water, and the dog was swimming for Iowa as fast as it could swim. (laughs) And so I reached my arm in, and as far as I could reach, and this water was just absolutely ice cold, reached in and just barely grabbed the dog by his hind legs. If I had been three seconds later, I would not have been able to grab the dog. It was just that close. Anyway, I pulled the dog in. And it was 20 below zero, and I didn't have my heater going yet. And so this dog is just absolutely freezing, um, soaking wet, shaking, trying to get the water off. I'm trying to light the heater. The heater would heat the house adequately, maybe up to about 30 or 40 degrees. So I took my jacket off, uh, tried to use my jacket as a towel to wipe the dog dry, finally got the heater going. And then the dog was so cold that I had to hold the dog inside. I had to kind of cuddle the dog inside my jacket and try to use some of my body heat to warm up the dog. (laughs) And so my wife says at that point, why didn't you just go home? Well, I mean, I kind of had obligations to my dad and my uncle and my nephew to kind of stay out there. And so I thought, well, I can just uh, keep the dog warm inside my coat. And I can still get close enough to the hole and look for fish. Well, the dog did not want to be anywhere within five feet of that fish hole.
1: <laughs> the
4: there was no way that dog was going anywhere close to that hole I had cut in the ice. And so I'm trying to hold the dog, you know, and then kind of look over my shoulder and trying to watch for fish. And it was pretty hopeless. Anyway, uh, somehow in all this confusion, I started looking for my lunch and uh, there was was no lunch. So somehow I think the dog ate my lunch as I was somewhere transporting gear back and forth between the parking lot and the fish house. So anyway, we did stay and fish for a while and finally could get the dog dried out. And we packed up and I dragged all my gear back to the Twin Cities and I walked in the door and the dog walked in and my wife looked at us and she looked at the dog and said, what happened that dog is looking really strange <laughs> i said well we had a little mishap the dog fell in the water and i had to rescue it but it was kind of an unusual day
0: and did you guys end up spearing anything that day
4: i don't think so i think it was a total total bust <laughs> i don't think we saw a fish all day long that would have made it all worthwhile if we had brought home a trophy fish that would have made it all worthwhile but
0: And finally, I caught up with Tucker Ladd, the owner of Trout's Fly Fishing, to chat about an upcoming event in Denver that The Drake is putting on with Trout's, Felt Soul Media, and the Fly Fishing Film Tour.
2: So historically, the the Fly Fishing Film Tour F3T has always held their uh, initial uh, tour kickoff here in Denver for, I think, the the past uh, eight to ten years. Uh, Due to a uh, change in ownership at our previous venue, City Hall, uh, the, the film tour wasn't able to kick off in, in, in Denver in January, and it's unfortunately moved to the final show in March. So as a place filler, we partnered with F3T, The Drake, and Felt Soul Media to put together the Thursday Throwback Fly Fishing Film Fest, which is... Basically, an evening of you know, kind of vintage fly fishing films from the era of like early 2000s to 2012. So, kind of back to that golden era when the whole trend started. Um, Movies like Hatch, Running Down the Man.
6: Oh, terrible cast! I so had a chance earlier. Had
3: a chance. For the longest time, everybody has told my brother and I
2: that. You cannot catch roosterfish on a fly. Here you are. um, Some of the the early classics that most people haven't seen on a big screen in over ten years.
0: Uh, Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about some of the films that you know are going to be in it? I know Tom's kind of going through the backlogs and.
2: You know? I, Tom has been pretty darn secretive about what's been going in. I think part of it is, you know, we're trying to find films from an era where they were shot on cell phones and VHS and not digital. Um, so it's been kind of an interesting treasure hunt, I think, for for Tom to figure out where all the films are located. Um, we've gotten confirmation that we will have some of the early felt soul films. Hell yes. Just watched
3: a fucking monster flash. There's a super kunja as long as my leg. There he
1: is. Ah, ah! <laughs> Look at the size of that fish! Look at the size of that fish! Oh, baby, you're so beautiful!
2: Oh. Um, but beyond that, we're keeping it a little bit close to our chest. I think the most exciting part about this one is, is showing some of the, the younger anglers in the sport these films that they've probably never even heard of. You know, films that really got me so energized about this in the early 2000s. Uh, the second really you know neat and, and wonderful part about this event is is the ultimate charity that we're raising money for, which is to buy an acre foot of water in Chatfield Reservoir um, with our partner Denver Trout Unlimited. This would ultimately uh, allow us to eliminate no flow days out of Chatfield Reservoir, ultimately creating a more viable fishery in our Denver South Platte. We were you know we know people are catching trout, carp, bass. Um, and with more water consistently flowing through our home water, we should be able to, to create a more consistent and healthy fishery. It, it's upwards of 80 days a year where there's no water coming out of Chatfield Reservoir into the Denver South Platte uh, you know, through town. Fish need water and river need water. And unfortunately, you know, particularly up around the Aspen Grove in the upper Denver South Platte near Chatfield, those are the low water days where we, we probably do see fish kills and in, in really detrimental conditions for the fish, high water temperatures. So just by being able to, to have CPW release water on behalf of anglers through the Denver you know urban area would certainly help to create a more viable fishery.
0: Cool. Anything else you want to include about this event or about uh, why people should come check it out or where you can buy
2: tickets? You know, I just want to thank all of our partners. we got Scott Fly Rods, Yeti Coolers, Fish Pond, Abel, Ross Reel, Sims, and Costa. Um, New Belgium Brewery also stepped up and is donating beer for the event. So I want to thank all of our, our manufacturing partners to help us to, with the donations that they are. Um, and then also thank the Drake F3T and Felt Souls for uh, being our partners in this venture. Sweet.
0: And tickets?
2: Tickets are $10 at Trout's. You can buy them in-store in our Denver location or online at www.trout's.com. Uh, you can also buy the tickets at the show the night of the event. They're $10 at Trout's, $15 at the door. Cool, that's all I got. All Anything right? else? Uh, no, look to seeing everyone on Thursday, January 18th. Doors open at 7. Show starts today. At the Oriental Theater in the Highlands. Uh, this is the old home of the Fly Fishing Film Tour and many other fly fishing films from, you know, from the past. We hope to see you there. Next week, I
0: think we're going to have a collaboration episode with one of my favorite fly fishing podcasts. Make sure to check in. Thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.